1: Howdy, everyone, and uh, welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Uh, First of all, a happy Friday as we are live here, the 18th of November. It's basically been a sad day as Qatar has banned beer sales for the World Cup starting this weekend. So uh, I basically urge you to open a can of beer in sheer protest while watching today's show. Uh, But... Joking aside, uh, we've had a pretty uh, positive couple of weeks after receiving evidence that the inflation is slowing in the U.S., uh, but is a lower inflation print per se a positive for equities? We're going to ask that question today, and I'm super happy to be joined by a guy that I've wanted to interview for quite a while, namely Warren Pies, the founder of 314 Research. Uh, Warren, welcome. It's a pleasure to finally uh, get the chance to
0: interview you likewise uh wanted to have this conversation for a while so looking forward to it indeed um so first things first
1: um the question that we're going to ask today is it per se positive for equities as we've seen in recent weeks when inflation starts disinflating in the official cpi numbers is there sort of a true yes or no answer to that question
0: Warren? Uh, There's rarely a true yes or no answer to any question in this game that we're playing. Um, I think if you were to say hold all else equal and just tell me inflation's falling from current levels uh, and all the things that flow from that, I think it is a net positive for equities. But obviously, the devil is in the details and why we're falling and things like that. So, you know, gun to my head, yes, I do think it's positive. It's been uh, our position that you know that we're in a trading range, and that you, once you get to the bottom of that trading range around that 35, 3600 level, the market will start to, you know, get supported by this inflation data coming down. And so, yeah, it is in our view a net positive. Uh, but obviously, if it if it's portending a recession coming, then clearly that wouldn't be. And that that's what we get worried about at the top of the range is decelerating earnings and slowdown in growth. If we take a um,
1: a look at the CPI data first, uh, Warren, let's have a look at at your view uh, on inflation. Uh, I think you've been pretty vocal that you now find firm evidence that the peak is end. But what about the quarters ahead?
0: Yeah, so that's uh, the the peak is end for inflation. I think that's everyone sees that now. Um, I think that we're going to have a rapid deceleration of the CPI as we move through 2023. That's our base case. I think from there, uh, a number of implications flow from that. Now, why do we see the CPI decelerating? I think, uh, number one, we're going to see goods deflation, outright deflation, especially in the car side. And earlier this year, cars were adding like 2.5% to the CPI print. That's going to be negative when we roll into next year energy as well, you know, you have to make some assumptions. And one of our major assumptions is that oil prices are going to, you know, be more or less uh, stable here. We're not going to see some super spike in oil, but let's assume that we're in 80 or $90 oil. I think you also, as we roll into spring of next year, see deflation from the energy component of CPI. And so those two factors alone can do a lot of work to bring down uh, CPI numbers that we've seen going back to the middle of summer and into next year. Um, obviously, we're going to deal with the shelter CPI stuff, and we've dug into that quite a bit and why that's going to lag and and potentially keep rising through next year. I think the question is going to present itself when we get to next year. And we've also looked at services x shelter. We think services x shelter is coming down. It tracks tax receipt data well. We've had the health insurance kind of quirk that came through the system and brought down the numbers here. And that's kind of core of the core. I think when we when the dust settles and it's only shelter CPI moving higher next year, the question is going to be facing the Fed: Do we set monetary policy in accordance with what is ultimately some stale data, the shelter data? That's you know maybe eighteen or twenty-four months out of date at that point. And I think that uh, as much as everyone wants to say the Fed is an inflation fighter now and yada, 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 I think it's a political beast and the political winds are going to shift. They're shifting now as we speak with midterms behind us. And I think that my best guess is that even if the shelter CPI component is high and is keeping us in that above 2% range, the Fed's going to look through that and set policy uh, based on the rest of the CPI and on the housing reality. Hmm. Makes sense.
1: And I perfectly agree to that view, by the way. Let's bring up a, a chart on uh, that particular shelter component of the CPI. Uh, I brought a chart for Brian um, with a, um, a picture of the observed rents, so the SILO index versus the surveyed rents from the um, CPI index. Um, Or, and please walk us through your thinking on how this actual component of the CPI index works and whether it's something that we should care about or not.
0: Yeah, this is a great, this is a great visual. The, uh, the Zillow observed rent index is a new rent index. So this is tracking the price level of new leases signed. And the, obviously, the majority of leases out there are renewed leases in the economy, and the CPI adjusts for that. If you dig into BLS papers, the CPI shelter, the rent component, is about 80% renewed leases. So renewed leases are, you know, I would say it like this. New leases set the market for rents, and renewed le- leases have to catch up to that. So because the CPI is weighted with more renewed leases, there's that lag effect we're talking about. So to the greater the divergence where new rents are above existing or renewed rents, the bigger the lag you're gonna see in the this, this CPI uh, shelter component. And there's a huge divergence right now. Mm. Uh, and uh, I mean,
1: if we were to expect a full catch up, to the reality from the silo index then we could have quite some upside left in the um shelter component in the cpi index the question is just whether the fed will actually care about it because by the end of the day my take is or in that they actually know that this is outdated uh, and therefore they obviously shouldn't set monetary policy on behalf of it um i wanted to, to bring up another chart in relation to the um inflation discussion uh it's probably my favorite inflation chart right now um and it shows the correlation between shanghai's freight index and um the goods inflation in the pce index so chart three brian um strong relationship between uh the cost of transportation from from china to the west and goods prices with the time lag so this is probably the part of the inflation index that we should really expect to come down. If you ask me, Warren, uh, what do you make of that divergence between services and goods into next year?
0: Oh yeah. I told, I think it's a great chart. And I think it just goes back to supply chain issues and kind of COVID lockdown. That's it's totally stale. And I, you know, I think this is the huge, this is the deflationary force that's sweeping through the data. Um, great chart. Another chart that we have that kind of goes to the similar, uh, point is we look at, uh, uh, changes in household net worth lagged by two quarters versus core PCE. And what you see is basically consumption patterns uh, work with like about a two quarter lag off of changes in household net worth. So you spend that forward, you're going to see, I think, uh, consumption really have a, a contraction here as we enter the first half of 2023, because really that drop in household net worth is a new thing. We're finally getting supply chain normalization. So yeah, good goods are, are definitely going to deflate i think that's a pretty even inflationistas that i talked to will admit to that and so that's why i think that services x shelter is really mm-hmm. that's that small sliver of the of the it's not small it's just an important sliver of uh, core cpi that is what we started really seizing on and in looking at it's where you start getting into health costs health insurance costs and healthcare costs and then You start looking at tax data, the tax receipt data is really starting to flounder. And when we look at that daily tax receipt data that we get and clean, uh, and that has historically matched, uh, services at shelter really well. So to me, you're starting to see some really disinflationary signs in the data. The big question now, Warren,
1: is whether that this matters for the Fed outlook for the next one, two quarters. Um, and you had a very interesting observation on your Twitter feed earlier um, with um, a discussion on the curvature between the Fed policy rate and the two-year point on the yield curve. So please enlighten us why that is such an important curvature.
0: Yeah, I mean if you think about just really basic stuff uh, what what is what is an interest rate or what is what goes into an interest rate of current interest rates of Fed policy, you have expected future interest rates, and you have a term premium. And term premium is really, you know, that all the stuff we can't explain and it's more or less the cost of um of, of owning a long bond versus rolling a series of short bonds, right? Well, when you start getting really close to the front of the curve, Fed funds rate versus the two-year, you have you know, the term premium factor is really, it gets negated to a, a large extent. And so now you're looking at Fed funds rate versus the two-year. So you have current interest rates, Fed funds rate versus – uh, expected future interest rates. So when you see that inversion where the two-year drops below the Fed funds rate, it's a generally reliable signal that a pivot is coming. You know that policy has gotten too restrictive, and so we saw that really almost to if you remember the Christmas Eve lows in the stock market, and the Fed was done hiking at this point back in 2018. We saw the two-year uh, invert with the Fed funds rate. It's a really important signal that I think we should be paying attention to in this cycle. So, you know, we talked a little bit, not to jump ahead of us, but we talked about a little bit before the call about, you know, being long, the long bond at this point in time to take advantage of what we think is going to be further inversion in the curve. But at that point in time, when you start seeing the two-year challenge of the Fed funds rate, you want to shorten your duration and you start wanting to consider more risk assets in your portfolio. And to me, that's a really clear roadmap that's starting to come out of the data.
1: And it's uh, maybe already on the cards within a couple of quarters from now, right? If uh, if we arrive on this disinflation environment, uh, I wanted to play a soundbite for you, uh, Warren, from a um, discussion that we aired today on the Real Vision platform. It's between Cuckoo uh, Blua, who's the uh, head of economics at Societe Generale, um, and, and the discussion was hosted by our own James Halliwell. Um, Cuckoo holds the view that this inflation is coming, but that we will settle at quite a higher level uh, of inflation rates relative to uh, the most recent history over the past couple of decades. So let's listen to the South bite and get back to that part of the discussion.
0: Global economy are expected to be in a recession next year, but this is where, as we discussed at the beginning of this conversation, there is a situation or a scenario in terms of, if you look at all the distribution of outcomes, where we might simply go back to normality when it comes to interest rates. So it's no longer the zero interest rate policy uh, or that we were used to before. And we might maybe be transitioning for this lower for longer to higher for, no, for, higher for longer, where three, 4% interest rates is the normality because the economies can take it
1: The entire interview with uh, Kukublua is uh, already available at the Real Vision platform, and it's part of our must-watch make or break series on inflation. Um, Warren, I wanted your take on this potential higher plateau for inflation going forward relative to what we've seen over the past couple of decades. What do you make of that thesis?
0: Well, so this is where we get it's an interesting kind of thought is, you, you have to, in markets, a lot of times you have to have kind of what hold what seem to be two competing ideas in your mind at the same time. And so for me, I don't think that's in the cards for next year. I think we're going to get much lower than consensus expects. You know, if you look at CPI swap rates, one year break even rates it's consistently between two and a half and 3%. I think we're headed to 3% next year, even with this lag effect in the shelter CPI that we were talking about. So I don't really, I wouldn't really call that some elevated level of inflation that we haven't seen. However, when I spin it forward, I do think there are long-term, you know, inflationary uh factors building i think we're entering into a commodity secular bull market this is something a chart that i put on twitter here recently that's generally associated with a higher uh, level of inflation and i i do think that the there's been a lot made of the deglobalization story and if you look at inflation patterns from 2000 forward and why did we have low inflation it was really you know china entering the wto uh, opening up world trade uh, that drove prices down and it was really durable goods in the United States. That was the driver there. And then the other factor was the shale revolution making uh, more or less abundant and cheap energy and financed uh, through, you know, capital markets that were at that time friendly to the energy sector and no longer exists. So those two factors are, are incrementally rolling back. And so, yeah, I think over time, inflation, we're going to have to deal with a higher inflation level and the fed's going to have to get creative.
1: If we look at corporate earnings, assuming that we are right on disinflation being the name of the game for the next three, four quarters here, Warren, what do you make of corporate earnings relative to expectations into 23, given the disinflation environment?
0: Yeah, I think that this is where you start, what you would say at the beginning of the show, Are you is a falling CPI or disinflation, is that... Is that a positive for equities? And it's the the question, the answer really depends is like, why? And I think the reason you have the initial rally, but it can't follow through to a full breakout is because once you get to this 4,000 level in the market, everyone looks around and says, what kind of value am I getting for stocks at this level? So I have a chart that I I provided, Brian, with the the S&P 500 versus uh, fair value. And essentially what we've seen is... um, this trading range develop around fair value for the for the s p 500 which we'd say is around 3800 now the caveat is that this fair value metric uses forward earnings and so forward earnings are at 236 dollars for 2023 that's like seven percent uh 2023 growth it assumes four percent revenue growth and it assumes that we're going to have all-time high margins next year i think these assumptions are um Very optimistic. So our models that says we're going to be more like $215 a share. And I think there's actually downside to that number if we hit a, if we enter a recession, so yeah, I think that, um, that fair value number, we're going to be chasing that lower for a bit as, as, as earnings estimates come down.
1: Yeah, and the next question is whether we can get a multiple expansion as a consequence of slowing inflation, even if earnings drop. Right, that could also be uh, one way of saving the equity market, even with um, earnings disappointing relative to the um, expectations. But in um, in any case, I am um, I wanted to get your take on sort of the broader ramifications for asset allocation if we enter a disinflation environment. So. First of all, bonds versus stocks—the usual suspect when you uh, chat to institutional investors—whether uh, to overweight bonds or stocks into
0: such an environment. Does it is—is uh, is it an easy answer? To this one. Uh, to in my view, yeah, I think you want to be overweight bonds, and it's 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 the that's becoming much clearer at this stage of the of, of the hiking cycle. Like you said, I think that by the time we hike. In December, probably 4.5 on the Fed funds rate. We already saw, like you said, two-year challenge Fed funds rate in this last kind of rally that we saw. Um, watch for those, watch for what happens in the in the fixed income market there. But I think at that point, you want to be long the long bond. That's what we were recommending at this point in time. I think that we're gonna see a more of the twos tens invert even more dramatically than it is right now and once you get to a triple digit uh, yield curve inversion uh and you have that twos, twos versus the fed funds rate invert that's when you want to start walking your way up the curve shortening your duration and then looking out to the equity market and seeing what have what kind of earnings outlook is being priced in at this point what kind of economic outlook is being priced in at this point so for now we're waiting to get tactically long uh, long bond and uh you know, underweight equities would be the at the top of this range, especially around four thousand.
1: Um, I recall you have brought a great chart with you showing that bonds outperform when equity earnings flat lines. Why don't we bring that chart up and and bring it into the discussion, Warren?
0: Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So a couple charts on why is this a good time to be long bonds. Uh, Number one, we have real rates across the curve. So, I mean, we haven't had that in a while. All the across the yield curve, over 1% real rates, close between 1.5% and 2%, actually. The other thing is if we do get an earnings recession where earnings uh, flatline, this chart's looking at the year following uh, earnings flatlines. So it's trailing 12-month earnings uh, for the last, uh, going back to the mid-70s. So 10 out of 11 cases that we've ever seen of earnings flatlining and then falling into negative territory bonds outperform they don't just outperform they they do really well in that environment and that's generally a slow growth environment makes total sense that you would be in bonds uh, another chart i don't think we we passed it along but when you look at major cpi peaks the year following major cpi peaks Bonds have always outperformed or not always perform uh, returned uh, positive returns in the year following a CPI peak. So that's another kind of factor. And we overlay these two things. There's a, a regime chart that I gave you, Brian, where we look at the beginning of earnings decelerations and the beginning of CPI decelerations. That's the green shades here. So that's two overlapping positive bond regimes. We go all the way back to 73 with this study. And essentially, again, this is the best. When you overlap these two regimes, not just one or, you know, the red is when neither of them, we have growing CPI and growing earnings. That's when you want to avoid bonds, but we've now entered this favorable regime. So I think everything's lining up for a long bond position at this point in time. You could argue with like, we've had this rally. Do you want to enter that position right now? I don't know. It depends on how cute you want to get and what sh- how tactical you want to be. But overall, I think that's the trade. What do you see? And I want to get your your feedback too. We had talked a little bit, we're on the same page, but with a little twist.
1: <laughs> well, I kind of got my face tattooed to that long TLT trade earlier this year. Um, I, I tried it, tried it um, back in June when I saw the first disinflationary vibes kicking in. Uh, and what I missed was obviously the move in real rates uh, that you uh, just described earlier. Uh, so, I think you're absolutely right now that with real rates running in clear, positive territory across the curve, the risk reward is better than when I entered this position for the first time back in June and got stopped out pretty quickly. Um, so for now, I I tend to agree with it. And if you look at, uh, historical correlations between the growth outlook and the relative risk premium between equities and uh, bond yields then i would argue that if the ism index for example in the u.s drops below 40 uh, from current levels then you should expect a widening of the risk premium in equities relative to bonds by in between two and two and a half uh, index points or percentage points uh, which basically translate into uh, bond outperformance of uh, of equities um, and Therefore, given the growth outlook that I have um, on the cards, then um, I would argue that it makes sense, at least from a relative perspective, to uh, to be long bonds relative to stocks. The question is just how to size that um, position correctly. I, I do it via volatility-adjusted measures, but um, it's not easy. You need to adjust it on a, on a running basis. The dark holes here, Warren. Energy. <laughs> I, I mean, what if we get a cold snap? What if the scarcity of natural gas returns, et cetera. What do you make of such a scenario?
0: It's it's entirely plausible. And that's the thing, that's the risk that's um, that's bothered me. And it's definitely a risk. I think it's a risk to the equity and the bond markets. Just like we saw earlier this year, energy was negatively correlated with every sector and the bond market. It's the only time we've ever seen one single sector in the equity market ever do that. And that was through basically all of the you know the early stages of Russia Ukraine and moving through Uh, into the summer i think that's the big so that's the market telling you that's our big risk here so for me i i think there is a lot of of value still in the energy space and so i think you want to pair if you it makes a lot of sense in your portfolio to be long bonds and long energy at the same time if you want you want to do that the right way obviously and obviously we've had this sell-off in oil we have official sanctions kick in in a few weeks Um, the market seems to think that this is going to be digested some of the physical market indicators we track say that there's that the market's well supplied at this point in time. So, you know, it doesn't look like a big is imminent, but oil is a, a crazy volatile beast and we have a lot of headline risk and a lot of things coming at it. China being locked down is, you know, will they come back? I've anticipated them coming back for all year and have been wrong. Uh, but, you know, at some point you'd have to hope or expect that their economy is going to get opened. And when that happens, uh, you know, 1 million barrels of, of uh, a day of demand are back online. And IEA expects well, 1 to 2 million, depends on if you want to count crude or crude and refined products of Russian supply off the market next year. And I don't think that supply is coming back under any kind of scenario for Russia, Ukraine. So the oil market remains tricky. It does. And it's a risk. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing
1: all of the geopolitical strategists that i've spoken to they they kind of refuse to buy into it right now um interestingly enough uh, because it was sort of a a firm rumor over the past couple of weeks here uh, i track um uh, the sort of lockdown index from oxford economics on a daily basis or weekly basis and it is visible on that index that china is moving towards easier restrictions, but very, very far from uh, an, an open economy after all. We get a lot of questions on the US dollar. (laughs) <laughs> because we we frankly haven't touched upon that, uh, so I can see uh, maybe even a handful of questions uh, directly on the U.S. dollar given this disinflation outlook. Uh, we've seen a, a sharp uh, retracement lower in the dollar index as a consequence of lower inflation prints. Do you think that will continue?
0: Yeah, i not. I don't think it's going to happen until we actually have a firm pivot from the Fed. So it's going to be one big trade in my view. Uh, is it's maybe a little consensus, but that's uh, that's the way I would play it. I don't think that the it would be premature to think the dollar is going to keep weakening because I think the Fed's going to have max hawkish rhetoric still. Kind of can look through that, and they are going to move forward with hikes next month. Obviously. And so I don't think that the dollar it gets a sustained uh, downtrend until the Fed officially pivots and has and changes their their posture. So, um, no, I, I still would expect a strong dollar here for a little bit. How about you?
1: Yeah, I've I've been stopped out of my dollar longs um, from um, from a new stop loss. Uh, I've been long dollar all year, so basically um, I got con- caught wrong footed in this move. And I think the issue now is that I would like to sort of be able to clearly see the light at the end of the tunnel for the uh, sorry European natural gas scarcity. And for now we were saved by a very hot October. I can guarantee you that it's cold as fuck now. <laughs> so uh, we, we're getting tested now uh, and uh, on a daily basis, I can see that the with- withdrawals are starting for the gas storages. So I'm I'm holding my horses here or whatever, it's called in English, um, waiting for a confirmation that we will actually make it through the winter without new material price hikes to, to natural gas in, in Europe. And I'm not convinced yet to, to be um, brutally honest question for you from jake uh, our member um he's asking you for the very short-term outlook if you find the bond the long bond attractive or um, even shorter bonds attractive given at the current juncture uh, which obviously suggests weaker growth upcoming in the next quarter or two are you then short-term bearish on energy stocks despite your long-term view
0: yeah um I think there is a little bit of downside in energy stocks just because they've run so much. Um, Now we've had a little bit of that come off in the last couple of weeks. We haven't changed our recommendations because honestly- it's a little bit of a messaging and our clients, we've been long these stocks for years now, but for going back to twenty twenty. And our clients are institutions and I try and message for people who have, you know, big ships that they can't, you know, they're not speedboats. They're 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 tanker ships. And so I I don't see anything coming that's going to be like brutal or wipe out a a group a good deal of the returns we've we've uh, that we've accumulated here. So but I do think it should be very well could be soft towards year-end. I mean, energy has been has just destroyed the rest of the market. Uh, so, yeah, I think so. But I, I don't see that being a long-term thing. I think it's a supply-constrained rally that that's taking place across the energy complex. And this is the thing we said earlier in this year, and it's really played out, is that oil-adjusted we think valuations in the energy space are, are, are going multiples are, are going to expand. I think the big thing coming out of this is that energy security has been undervalued by the market. Mm -hmm. And it's now you have to think that it's much more valuable. I don't care what the political rhetoric is. um, And we'll see how this winter turns out for Europe. Cause like you said, it's been two standard deviations uh, outside of the norm, how warm it's been so far. And so I think a lot of that could change if we just get a normal winter and you know, we see how serious it is to outsource your energy security to, to unfriendly nations. So all that comes together. I think this is a long-term story. I'm not trading around these stocks. I want to own them. And I want to build more of a portfolio around them. I think the bonds with energy, especially if we get a sell-off here, that's, that makes a lot of sense to me.
1: Yeah. And um, I, I basically wanted to add that um, if we were to get a recession, um, then I probably consider energy one of the most sort of inflexible goods at all when it comes to the demand side through a recession, right? Um, we we saw how um, the energy demand dropped through the pandemic, but it wasn't that bad given the entire globe was in a lockdown, right? Uh, you still had a massive demand for oil barrels even in a lockdown. Uh, I know the price went negative short term, but I mean, the price is obviously sensitive to that. Marginal change in demand, but the overall demand is still there, so you will get that catch-up again, I guess.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. And when you go back to the the financial crisis, we lost peak to trough about 2.73 million barrels a day of demand. Peak to trough. We just named two factors, Russia uh, sanctions and China reopening, that could add 2 million bullish barrels a day to the supply-demand imbalance next year. On top of just your typical normal growth, depending on, you know, so I I don't think this is going to be the kind of recession where energy's uh, on the floor very much at all. I think there's a firm, and the thing is, there's not much spare capacity out there. Saudi Arabia in particular, if we get a pullback, they would love to cut some production here and claw back some of that spare capacity anyways. So I do think there's a firm floor under oil prices. I'm not betting on, I, I wouldn't be getting short at the market here for sure.
1: So um, Warren, let me try and sum up our discussion. It's been a pleasure to to host you here. Um, I think we we both, both agree that the disinflation trend is pretty firm now uh, and we should expect the CPI index to disinflate um, in the quarters ahead, which makes the long bond trade attractive, at least relative to equities also when you look at historical studies of such disinflation trends. But a way to ensure that you still have sort of one egg in your basket um, playing the long end of the inflation game uh, is to to continue to belong the energy complex in the stock space so i guess I i'll leave it there for today uh, unless you have further comments for the audience warren
0: no i really had a good time talking to you i appreciated uh, the opportunity hopefully we can do it again Absolutely, I, uh, I really enjoyed talking
1: to you as well, Warren. And um, to the audience out there, go check out Warren and his uh, great great research company uh, fully endorsed from, from my side. Um, I want to thank you all for, for watching, but before we um, conclude today's show, um, I need to remember the meme of the day. And um, I guess we can uh, bring it up on the uh, screens, Brian. Um, I just wanted to uh, leave you with a meme from our discussion. So um, with that said, Have a great weekend and see you on Monday. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com
2: and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.